If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hola. Hello, this call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow, ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow, now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. Through history, birds have been many things to us. Pets, pests, natural delights and even bad omens. In their new book, When There Were Birds, the authors Roy and Leslie Adkins look at the history of this human-avian relationship. It's a story of changing landscapes, fluctuating tastes in food and fashion, enjoyment and exploitation. Emily Briffitt spoke to them to find out more. So hello to you, Roy and Leslie. It's a pleasure to be chatting to you today. Hello, it's really good to be here. It is indeed. Today we're going to be talking about your new book, When There Were Birds, which uncovers the story of the human connection to birds throughout history. So I want to start by asking you, what is so significant about uncovering this history? It is actually about so many different things that have been overlooked or forgotten And it's so easy to do that when they are just little bits here and there and everywhere. It's only when you really draw them together that you get an idea that this is such a big subject and it is a question of the birds having been intertwined, really, with our history for many, many hundreds of years. 
And just to give a few examples, I mean, they're part of our traditions, part of our sports, uh, part of the sinister behaviour that they have uh, that has influenced so many people over the years with all sorts of superstitions and their use in things like medicine even. It is a very strange sort of influence that birds have had over us over this long period of time. And we have exploited them ruthlessly during that time for their feathers, for their food and all kinds of bits and pieces. Really what we have are two intertwined stories because on the one side it's a social history of Britain and on the other it's a history of scientific research which was driven by advances in technology, in particular the development of guns and in things like improved sailing ships, which led to more exploration and more knowledge about birds far away from this country. And so by drawing everything together, we found that the subject of birds has been totally overlooked and that we could bring out the wider picture and, and understand things which we probably have uh, dismissed in the past, just not quite understood and not questioned. So one thing you really build a picture for, in this, uh, certainly at the start of your book and throughout really, is almost a sense of marvel about birds. Uh, have we always had such a fascination with birds? And if so, why? I think we have uh, had that fascination because at the beginning um, there were just so many birds and you couldn't avoid birds and this was part of the, the, the everyday experience of people. You would just step outside your door and there were literally hundreds of different birds there. So you couldn't avoid them and obviously they would influence your whole life in many different respects. Uh, you, they started, for example, to tell the weather by birds, by all sorts of um, observations of birds, probably to start with. You have, in the Roman period, the auguries of watching flights of birds by the augurs and trying to predict the future and obviously the weather as well. Uh, but Later on, they were actually using birds as indicators of weather. For example, the poor kingfisher suffered terribly uh, with this because they killed kingfishers, hung them up, and the way that the beak pointed, they were hung up indoors, but the way the beak pointed was supposed to point to the wind direction. Uh, there was no actual scientific basis for this. They actually tested it later on and proved it wasn't. But this lasted for quite some time as a superstition. I guess this ties into another big chapter in your book, which is birds and their connection to this superstition, mythos and magic. Could you perhaps tell us more about this? Can you perhaps elaborate? It's a huge subject. Actually, the, it could have taken over the whole book. There were a lot of superstitions around hens and cocks, and so it was believed that witches could cause trouble with eggs. And so if you eat a boiled egg, um, 
the everybody would smash the eggs afterwards, the, the, the shells, so that the witches wouldn't get hold of the shells and use them as boats. And there are actually witchcraft trials of people who have been um, accused of causing things like uh, um, death at sea, shipwrecks, because uh, one one particular example, um, a woman from Kings Lynn, she was accused of causing the death of, I think it was about 13, 13 men um, who were buried at wells um, next to the sea. And just as they were coming into port, the ship foundered and they were all drowned. And she was put on trial because it was said that she boiled eggs in cold water and therefore caused their death. Some of this is hiding almost in plain sight. If you look at Pepys, for example, he has an entry in his diary for about 1667 where he's called away to his uh, brother-in-law because his brother-in-law is near to death. And he gets there and he says that the, the poor chap was on his deathbed and his breath was rattling horribly and they'd put pigeons to his feet. And you don't really realise that um, behind that is something that was totally accepted and known about at the time but not known now, which was that they took live pigeons, split them open and applied them to the feet of the patient in the hope that it would draw down the sickness into the pigeons. And, of course, the pigeons did die, which was a good sign. But uh, very often as well, the patient died too. They used these pigeons often as a last resort and, and very often it didn't work. And the superstitions as well, a lot of them are surrounding death. There are so many different superstitions of birds being observed and you would then expect a death to to take place. Well, of course, death so often took place that, that it was almost bound to come true anyway. I think the saddest... Um, one thing that we uh, came across was the story of um, a woman whose daughter was very ill and the daughter said to her, um, will I be able to do this when I'm better? And the mother turned to her and said, you're never going to be better. And she turned to, the, to, to, to another woman and, and explained what had happened, that when they were coming away from church one day, a swallow touched the shoulder of her daughter and therefore, that was such a bad omen. It, it was going to mean that the daughter died. So it was almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. Through looking at our connection to birds, you can really build a picture up of society as well. So what can studying this history perhaps tell us about changing attitudes towards the exploitation of animals and natural resources and that kind of thing? One strand in our history that is, is portrayed by birds is the change of eating habits over the centuries because they used to eat an awful, much larger range of birds than we do now. Mostly we tend to eat game birds and chickens and ducks perhaps but and pheasant, but not a great range of birds, not down to small birds like uh, wheat ears, like uh, blackbirds, thrushes and so on. These we would not normally consider to be uh, worth eating or indeed good eating. But 
they would eat anything that they could and very often in pies there are various recipes going back 100 years 200 years how to cook these small birds in in quantity the the four and 20 blackbirds baked in a pie that's probably a little bit of an exaggeration it's also um one of these conceits at the time whereby you would have live birds in a pie that would be a surprise at a banquet but actually they did cook blackbirds perhaps a dozen at a time in a pie and they were supposed to be reasonable eating but the ornithologists the early ornithologists anything that they shot they tended to taste to see if it was worth eating or not and Opinions differed as to whether some birds were worth eating or not. And seabirds in particular had very divided opinions about them. Some people really liked them. Others found them totally unpalatable. One recommendation for one particular species of seabird was that it was better actually buried for a time. And another acerbic comment was it was better to bury it and leave it there rather than ever eat it. You also get um, starlings. I mean, today, starling numbers have declined hugely um, and, and it seems inconceivable to us to even want to eat starlings. But a lot of people liked them. And a lot of other people hated them. But one recommendation to, to make them edible was when you shot them to tear the heads off them straight away because that would make them taste a lot nicer. But one ornithologist, William McGillivray, said that um, he had tried it both ways and he, he couldn't find any difference in them. Um, but, yeah, quite incredible. Um, in Italy and possibly over here, they would put um, ceramic pots on the outside of buildings um, in order to encourage starlings to nest and then they would take the young um, for food. Over here, they did that with um, sparrows. Um, one reason was to try to stop the sparrows being a nuisance and nesting in thatched roofs, but also they could um, take both the eggs and the um, young sparrows. And right up until about, I think, the 1950s, we've, we've come across reports saying, actually, um, sparrows are quite, are quite a tasty dish. And, and people, um, particularly Sussex and Oxfordshire, we've, um, that we've got reports from, were really partial to um, sparrow pies. But as you can see, um, they would take eggs as well. And people ate any sorts of eggs. Um, today, we yeah we barely think beyond um, poultry eggs, hen, hen's eggs. But one of the most popular types of eggs for people along the coast were gulls' eggs, and you had climbers or climbers who would go down the cliffs, totally perilous occupation, and collect thousands upon thousands of eggs and sell them. Some of them they would sell to ornithologists because they wanted particular things for their collections, but a lot of them um, were eaten and others went for industrial processes such as the leather industry. But some communities, and 
And this is an instance of where life has changed dramatically in Britain. Some communities rely totally on things like eggs. Um, In St Kilda, which is now uninhabited, they would collect eggs and store them so that they could live off them all winter. And a lot of remote communities had to do that, whereas nowadays we are so connected that nobody is going to rely on seagull eggs um, to survive all through the winter. They also, um, on St Kilda and elsewhere, would salt um, and uh, preserve puffins, um, and and they they would eat eat puffins, uh, and they didn't have much else. Uh, a lot of things like the puffins were also pickled and sent off to Catholic countries because they would get around the rules for Lent and they were allowed to treat these birds as fish because they tasted like fish. Um, that also happened in this country pre-Henry VIII. Oh, I mean, that was one of the reasons that led to some of the puffin decline on places like Priestholm, which is just a little island off Anglesey, which... Well, yeah, I think in its heyday was actually pickling thousands of puffins for export. But one of the things I think in terms of food that we don't really have a a great idea of now is the fact that poultry shops had such a range of birds for sale even you know up to a hundred years ago, they would have all sorts of wild birds as well as the, the the ones that you would normally think of today. But again, it shows you that that there was such an array of different birds. Uh, swans, um, in particular, were were favoured at Christmas time. The poultry shops would vie with each other for wonderful displays. <laughs> Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Paul Lundy Island suffered tremendously because the boats would go out from there as soon as they were able to, they were allowed to in particular season, and they would just tear the wings off the birds and, and dump the rest to bring the wing feathers back, which was the ones that were needed for the fashions. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. Hola. Hello, this call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow, ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow, now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. 
Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. It's hard not to add a side of hot, crispy hash browns to your favorite McDonald's breakfast. It's even harder not to eat said hash browns before you get home. I think there's one point there that I'd really like to pick up on, which is almost how humans have affected bird populations. So humans have obviously made massive changes to the landscape and have also made massive industrial and technological developments. You spoke a little bit about this, but how has this really affected our relationship with birds? I think our relationship with birds has has changed so dramatically. It's difficult actually to describe how it has changed because there were just so many birds once upon a time that it is difficult to actually comprehend your, the numbers that we're talking about. Last year, for example, here in Devon, we saw a little flock of 30 um Goldfinches. I, I always, the always name. forget the name of that. <laughs> Goldfinches, yes. Uh, and we thought this is wonderful. This is the, the most number of goldfinches we have seen together ever, 30. And yet 200 years ago, you have William Cobbett equally excited about a huge flock of goldfinches that he had seen. And he was a countryman. He he was a political writer, but he was also a farmer. He knew his birds and he saw this flock and he, he was just amazed by it because there were so many he had to write it down. And he estimated there was 10,000 of them. Now, even if he was out by a few thousand, it is still unbelievably large number of birds in one place and you do not see birds on that scale anymore um, not not these last hundred years it has been a slow decline over the centuries but it has rapidly increased in the last few decades really i think partially because of the rapid development generally speaking all development of buildings, roads, and so on, but also the development, the industrialization of agriculture that has come on a pace in the last few decades, that has matched the development of cities and towns. Well, I think what really affected bird populations or started to affect them was the um, drainage of all the wetlands in, in Britain. That was the biggest change in the countryside. And for over, you know, two, two, three hundred years, you, you, you read reports about, um, you know, can't, can't find snipe anymore. And, and snipe was quite a delicacy. They, they were, people really liked to shoot and eat them. And uh, the, the reports on drainage 
are just staggering. The uh, the numbers of wetlands that have been drained. Britain was such a different landscape at, at one time, and bit by bit, um, it's been drained and, and turned into um, agricultural land. And at the same time, you have then various other huge things which have come along, like um, canals and railways and. And then, as Roy said, the the increase in towns and um, also lighting. Um, the, this this country was in blackout, and birds. Then, when you had first lighthouses, they they are drawn to lights, and as the cities became more and more lit, first with gas lighting and and then electric lights, they were more and more uh, at risk. And then you get people collectors of birds. Um, collectors of bird eggs and all the all the birds that were taken for food and it's all sorts of things all coming together as a perfect storm really. I think one of the other things that we see is birds have been considered a bit of a nuisance throughout the history and so we also perhaps see that sort of systematic destruction more culling. When do we sort of really see this happening? surprisingly early uh, there is the, the earliest legislation in this country that regard is regarding birds actually dates to henry the eighth and it was a time when he was breaking away from rome and uh, really cutting himself off from the continent and there was a worry about food supplies and so he gave an ordinance in order to cull various birds that were considered as pests and were therefore a competitor with humans for the available crops. And this was actually strengthened in Queen Elizabeth's time when she added more to the list for the cull. And Actually, this went on for several centuries where it actually slipped to the uh, the remit, really, of the, the local farmers and then eventually the church wardens who paid for the numbers of birds that would be produced. And normally you didn't have to produce the actual birds, you just actually produced the bird's head. So you get references in in parish records to the number of sparrows heads that were brought in and paid for and so on so yes there, there is a direct correlation with these early attempts to cull birds as pests later on they were scared off the land and that in itself had a, a human cost because there was so much under agriculture in, say, the 18th century onwards, that it was at risk from great flocks of birds. And so this was usually the way that young boys in particular, but some girls as well, started their life as workers in the countryside. So very young, at the age of eight or nine, they would be trudging the fields as bird scarers. But the other problem was that people didn't understand birds, so they didn't know what birds were causing destruction to the crops, um, and so they were all treated as vermin, whereas with when the ornithologists began to shoot birds, uh, they would 
dissect a lot of them and then open them up and, and actually find that they were full of insects and that they weren't actually attacking crops. They were taking the insects off these crops. Um, and so people were often destroying what was beneficial. And, uh, and, and that's also a total tragedy. So um, you also had the example of gamekeepers there were so many rules regarding who could shoot birds and it 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 wasn't as obvious as you might imagine um, because if you were a farmer, you may not have permission to shoot birds on your own land because you didn't uh, have sufficient money. You only um, farmed a certain amount of land, so you weren't allowed a licence to shoot. So other landowners could come in and shoot on your land. And um, with changing legislation, more and more gamekeepers were allowed to come in and it was up to them to ensure that uh, the shooting of birds was a really good sport. And so they would um, destroy all sorts of birds that they regarded as vermin. And again, you, you, you get superstition back in. Um, and so a lot of them would destroy owls because it was obvious they were no good to anyone. And, uh, and, and then they couldn't understand why they might be overrun by rats and mice, which the owls were previously taking. When do we really see a concern for the protection of birds come about? I think in the 19th century, there is a, a growing uh, movement uh, for protection of different types of birds. Uh, one of the earlier ones is the protection of seabirds, because they realised that in some situations, like Flamborough Head was the classic situation, where the seabird cries could be heard by the sailors in deep fog when the lighthouse and even the foghorn could not. There were just so many seabirds and they were flying around Flamborough Headland. It warned them off the rocks. And at a, a later stage, there was a lot of shooting of these seabirds around Flamborough and they reduced the numbers with shooting of the, the seabirds and taking the eggs that this no longer worked and there were a lot of sea, uh, shipwrecks as a result of the birds being reduced in numbers and consequently there was uh, a movement to bring in uh, laws to protect seabirds gradually but some of the later movements they were coming from exploitation of birds that is quite shocking. The ladies, ladies fashions for plumes in hats at the end of the 19th century led to a terrible decline in some bird species around the world, not just in Britain. In Britain, for example, Lundy Island suffered tremendously because the boats would go out from there as soon as they were able to, they were allowed to in particular season, and they would just tear the wings off the birds and, and dump the rest to bring the wing feathers back, which was the ones that were needed for the fashions. And to cut a long story short, this eventually led to the formation of the RSPB because it started out as a movement against this fashion in wild bird plumes being used for hats in ladies' fashions. 
Extraordinarily, though, the millinery trade started to get defensive and so they would tell the ladies buying the hats that these feathers were not real feathers but they were being manufactured in um, workshops by uh, industrious people who were really enjoying their, their jobs. Eventually, you got so many reports of, of people saying, ladies, ladies, please stop wearing these feathers. It, is, it, it, it was a shocking industry. What do you see or what do you hope to see as being the future of humanity's relationship with birds? I think what we have tried to do is write a history of birds. And in doing that, we've actually shown um, what we have lost. And so what we hope people will do is perhaps appreciate what there could be. We will never get back to the days when there were huge wetlands in the country, but we could get back to something which people really love because uh, people, most people actually really enjoy seeing and hearing birds. I think the situation now is that it will never, ever go back to the position where birds are a threat to us or a nuisance in any way, but we could get them back to a position where they were enjoyable on a daily basis rather than going somewhere else to see them, rather like you would, might go to a museum. That, that's not the, really the, the best way forward at all. That was Roy and Leslie Adkins. Their book, when There Were Birds is out now, published by Little Brown. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.